Are you ready for a travel adventure? How about an exciting trip to Venice or an exhilarating experience in Bangkok? Maybe you were more about a culinary adventure in Barcelona or just a relaxing day cruising the canals of Amsterdam. Join the Professor Travel as he invites you on an epic excursion, one that has you traveling the globe with him. Come and experience a world of culture, a world of history and architecture, a world of food and experiences to broaden your mind and save you time and money as you travel. Learn more, discuss more, travel more, and enjoy life more. And now your host, The Professor Travel. Greetings, students, and welcome to this episode of The Professor Travel. I am your host, The Professor Travel, coming to you live from Southern California. This is the website, the vlog, and the podcast that you go to in order to learn more about different types of travel destinations. This is where you go in order to discuss amongst the community about um, traveling more. Uh, we hope this inspires you to travel more, in fact, and hopefully enjoy life more. Now, you can reach me at a variety of different social media sites, including, of course, my website, which is at... Uh, theprofessortravel.com. You can also find me on both YouTube and Facebook at The Professor Travel. I'm now available on TikTok for all of you millennials that are out there um, <laughs> and Gen Xers, Gen Y, Gen Z. Um, you can find me there at The Professor Travel. Um, if you're on Instagram, it's a little bit different. You can find me at The underscore Professor underscore Travel. On Twitter, I'm available there at The Professor TR1. And then finally, if you're a blogger, you can find me on Blogspot at theprofessortravel.blogspot. Com. Today, I am very honored to introduce you to my visiting professor, uh, Professor Cameron Gould-Saltman. Say hi, Cam. Hello. How are you, <laughs> Professor? I'm doing well. How are you, sir? I'm well, thank you. Good to be on. Thanks oh, for having me. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so very much. Now, before we get into your credentials, I do have a question about the picture that is appearing on the screen for those who are um, on my YouTube channel. Can you tell me a little bit about this? Because I mistook this for an English archery lesson, and that's nowhere close to where we're talking about today. No, so this is actually one of my favorite days of, of travel in my life, I think. Um, so this day was spent basically playing lawn games with some of the hosts that I had in Bhutan, the country we're going to be talking about today, but dressed up in traditional Bhutanese clothing uh, and just took the day to enjoy kind of, you know, some archery, some lawn darts and hang out and have fun. So that is a traditional Bhutanese longbow um, <laughs> that plays a very big role in their culture. Wonderful. Well, I'm going to be thrilled to learn more about Bhutan because it's not a place that a lot of people travel to. And I'm hoping that by listening to this vlog and podcast that they're going to learn more about that. So thank you again for taking the time to share with us on this. Of course. Super excited to be here. So to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your credentials, maybe a little bit about your educational background and then a couple of places that you've traveled before? Absolutely. So uh, I did my undergrad, I got my bachelor's degree in Ohio. So born and raised in Los Angeles, kind of surrounded by international cuisine and, and diverse people, um, but was ready for a change of pace. So I went to the middle of the country to Ohio State, uh, where I graduated with a business degree, um, worked my way around a couple jobs before finally going back to school to get, pursue my MBA at the University of Chicago, Chicago booth that I'm representing today <laughs> on my shirt. Uh, always branding. Um, yeah, so this was actually a trip that immediately preceded my MBA. So quit my job where I was working in Amazon 
uh, in Seattle and decided to take a few months off before going back to school for some, some rigorous academic curriculum. So decided to take a couple months off and, and go to Bhutan among other places. But I've been kind of, I've been to probably 26 or 27 countries, uh, Bhutan, Nepal, Jordan, China, Japan, five or six times. Um, so skew heavily towards Asia because, uh, I've been on the West coast for a while and it's just so convenient. Um, I know. But, you, you and I are kind of like, I'm, I'm kind of in a, like in a, uh, uh, informal competition with you for countries. and I was going to, and if my, if my, um, if my cruise coming up here in March was not canceled, unfortunately due to the coronavirus, I think I may have been up there with you around 27 countries at the time. So I'm definitely going to consider that a challenge and continue to work with you on this as we continue to go along. It's part of my bucket list, so I figure why not? I get yeah, to try. totally get it. Let's uh, let's rack them up and see Absolutely. see how many we can get. Now you do skew heavily towards Asia, and I tend to skew more heavily towards Europe, but I'm not opposed to um, changing that up. In fact, um, towards the end of this year, I'm actually looking to go to India, UAE, um, Oman, uh, Sri Lanka, Maldives, Seychelles, Kenya, Tanzania, and uh, South Africa. So we're going to see how that all plans out. (laughs) Everybody's over this. Um, But uh, yeah, so we've got a lot of plans coming up here. Uh, So stay tuned. Um, Now, also, for the benefit of my students, can you maybe tell us a little bit about why you decided to go to Bataan? Because that is not exactly something that comes to the mind of a lot of people when they consider traveling. Yeah. So like I said, I was in Seattle working at Amazon immediately before this trip and, and knew that I would have a couple months off and, and was asking myself, you know, what I wanted to do in a few months. So uh, because I was in Seattle, I'd been doing a lot of hiking and I told myself I wanted to have some some big feat. I wanted to do something for self-improvement and challenge myself before business school to kind of get myself in the right headspace. So I was actually toying with the idea of potentially going to Tanzania and, and hiking Kilimanjaro's um, or maybe doing the Annapurna circuit in Nepal, which is what I ended up deciding to do. So in Seattle, I started training a bit for this big long hike, but Nepal happens to be so close to Bhutan and Bhutan is just such a unique place. Like you mentioned that not many people think about going. So as a self-proclaimed and, and converted Buddhist, um, figured this would be a phenomenal opportunity to see this country that not many people get to go because I would be on that side of the world and, and traveling to Nepal already takes so much time that figure another hour or so flight was, you know, a drop in the bucket. So decided that I would do five or six days in Bhutan, um, and started doing my research and ended up going and it was a phenomenal time. It sounds like it. And the pictures I've seen from there are, you know, I've seen you post on Facebook and, and I think you had some great insight that you're sharing as well. Um, now how long in advance did you have to start planning for this trip? So I would say the travel logistics themselves probably took a one and a half to two months. Um, and I, I tend to plan things very, with very, very little notice. So I have gone to Thailand on four days notice. Um, this is kind of how I traveled because I've worked jobs where they would say, hey, you don't have a whole lot of work coming up next week. And I would just jump on a jet and fly. Um, so this is kind of the most planning I've done for a trip because the process for a visa application and everything is so arduous and you have to get so many approvals because it's such a unique country. Um, so I would say about a month and a half or two months. Um, and then I started training, like I said, physically for, for some of the activities that I pursued there. Awesome. Now, talk to me about the visa process. What did you have to do in order to go, and go through that? Because Bataan is one of those locations that requires it. And I'm not sure if Nepal does, do they? 
Valid question. In fact, I happen to have my passport right here. Um, <laughs> appropriate. So I will say that Bhutan is a is a kingdom still. Um, so they actually require that the king or the government, you know, the king's office, approves everybody who applies to enter the country. Okay. So uh, I think it was as simple as effectively writing a letter um, to the government uh, and applying for this visa basically in that letter saying, you know, I, you know, where I would be staying kind of the traditional visa stuff, but also maybe a little bit about why I wanted to go to Bhutan. Um, and after a few weeks, they wrote back to me and, and <clears throat> gave me a visa. So I did that. I think Nepal also might require a visa. Um, and of course, the accompanying information around where you're going to stay, what you plan on doing while there. Um, so super interesting process um, that are, you know, it's a, it's a far more high touch on the government's end because they have so few visitors. So I think they've got something like five to 6,000 US visitors every year. Oh, wow. um, and they they skew largely older. So uh, if we want to talk about kind of the visa process now and the accompanying fees, um, that's kind of the, the big barrier for Bhutan for a lot of tourists um, when compared to, say, other countries like Nepal. So Nepal is kind of your traditional backpacker destination, huge mountains, a lot of treks that you can go on. And you can basically pack a backpack and add that to your your you know worldwide tour of backpacking pretty cheap <laughs> bhutan on the other hand uh the visa fee there's a, a fee that is 250 dollars per day per person oh wow so uh, it's at, you know the, at face value very expensive but when you look at what that covers it's actually a pretty good deal um so your fee actually goes to and we can talk through this a little bit later but your fee covers your accommodations, your food, your guide, and a driver. Oh, okay. So it's so, like almost like an all-inclusive fee that's associated with that. I like that, actually. Yeah, it's, it's very convenient, um, but definitely a lot to swallow for a lot of people if you think about it as merely a visa fee. And, and that does cover their universal education and their universal health care for the citizens of Bhutan. So, because <laughs> uh, the way I look at it, then is almost like, um, like how you know how some people go to those all-inclusive resorts, and mm-hmm. it's kind of like if you're planning on going to a destination like that, when you're paying for the visa process to go to Bhutan, it's almost like something similar, but you're just you know, it's kind of like a five-star you know experience for you that's already being taken into consideration. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's super interesting, and this is done. This fee is is implemented because they want to limit tourism. This, they just opened up tourism for the first time in 1974, I believe. Um, it was a closed, it had closed borders before then, <clears throat> and because you know, because of this tourism, you know, clearly there are implications around crime and theft that come with uh, some of the tourism. So they want to limit it. Um, so they've got some very, very strict restrictions on things that tourists can and can't do, and what citizens can and can't do. Um, but this is definitely an effective way to limit tourism. But it also makes it a super interesting experience because you're not constantly surrounded by tourists. That makes more sense then. Um, speaking of traveling, especially to uh, destinations that are a little out of, the, out of the way, what kind of travel medications did you have to prepare for in advance or did you? Yeah, I definitely did. So because I I go to Southeast Asia on average once every year and a half or so, um, I had had some of the necessary shots. So you definitely want your hepatitis A, B, C, your typhoid fever shot. Um, Beyond that, I think I may have gotten a yellow fever shot. And then you want to bring... 
you know, some, some medications with you just because I travel mostly for food and I, I eat a lot of street food and I'm a little bit riskier as a yeah. leader. <laughs> I, I've known you for your entire life. And uh, for those, for those of my students who don't know, I'm his uncle. So, I mean, that's what maybe we look a little bit alike, but that's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a coincidence, <laughs> but I mean, uh, you're definitely much more adventurous in your travel, in your travel than I am. And I, I tend to, I'm, I'm not sure if that's just because you've always been that way, but it's, it's, you get a lot of different experiences than I do as part of that process. And I, I you know, bless you for that, man. <laughs> I'm telling you, I think it's, I think it's really great. And you have different stories to share with me when, even if we go to the same countries, your, your experiences are very different than mine as part of that. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a matter of how I travel during my formative years of traveling. So my first solo trips were kind of in my early 20s when I was going to hostels in Thailand and, and eating a lot of street food. And that's kind of shaped the way I like to travel now, uh, much to the chagrin of some of my travel partners. So I recently <laughs> went to Mexico City with my parents and, and treated my parents to this trip. And the accommodations and the flight were not quite up to snuff in my, with my mother's standards. So, you know, we live and we learn. Um, but I, I loved this trip. Um, and I would say back to your earlier question about medication, I think because of what I plan on eating, uh, I wanted to make sure that I had, you know, the classic like anti-diarrheals. So you've got your Imodium, your Pepto-Bismol, just to make sure you're, you're covered from a gastrointestinal perspective. Um, and then some general antibiotics. So I think I got a Z-Pack and, and everything. Okay. Um, but I did know that they would have pretty pretty extensive health care there because of their universal health care. So I wasn't too worried. Excellent. Well, let's move on to the pre-packing process. So what was the weather going to be like at the time of year that you were going and what were you planning on bringing with you as part of that process? Yeah. So, so in Southeast Asia, the summer seasons are monsoon seasons. Um, so I anticipated lots and lots of heavy rain. So a good light rain jacket. So because I plan on going on this trek, that kind of precluded me from bringing big wheelie bags that weren't very mobile. So I packed a big backpack, um, basically just a big backpack and maybe a smaller backpack to attach on the front of me. So kind of your traditional backpacker look. Um, and in that backpack, of course, I carried my toiletries and medications. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really thought about what I would be able, what the necessities were for a long trek that I planned on doing in Nepal, but also what would be beneficial for me walking around Bhutan for six or seven days where I would go on day hikes and stuff. So I definitely made sure to bring a light raincoat. So I basically brought a shell. I brought a couple of good layers of thermal coverings. Um, so in many... In many places in Bhutan, um, like some of the monasteries and temples, you have to cover your arms and legs. So I made sure that because it was going to be, say, 80 degrees, 90 degrees in some instances, uh, I wanted to bring something that would cover me but would be light and breathable. So I would say lots of thermal wear, some leggings and tights here and there. Um, for you know, active stuff, um, and then you know, just lots of lots of light T-shirts. You know, focusing on what I can pack, lots of that would be light, but would be enough to keep me from smelling bad. Uh, because you were going to be bringing such a small amount of stuff, were you looking for places that you could do laundry along the way, or was that just not really in your wheelhouse? So I really didn't think through doing laundry. Um, it's definitely a consideration, but because I planned on being in so many different places, um, so my trip was actually kind of a 
a Bhutan sandwich with Nepal bread. So I landed in <laughs> Nepal, had Nepal for a couple of days, then went to Bhutan and then planned on going back to Nepal for this big trek at the end. Okay. Um, so I felt like I wouldn't really have time for laundry necessarily, um, but definitely not a consideration, not a consideration for me that I probably should have thought about. What about as far as either sun protection or, because I, I know you said it was monsoon season, but it's still, you know, an area where it can hit 90 degrees. And if it, if it's going to drain you, you know, you definitely want to make sure you're protected. Uh, what about something like that or mosquito repellent of any sort? Yeah. So not only did I bring a lot of like, it's very strong mosquito repellent, like 100 level deep, but I also brought malaria pills okay. um, because malaria is prevalent in that part of the world. So brought malaria pills, brought mosquito repellent and did bring sunscreen, right? You're, you're going up on these high mountains that have extreme UV exposure. So you want to make sure that you're covered. So I brought a hat and sunscreen, um, kind of all those toiletries that you would need. Yeah. And that was one thing I was actually really surprised when I was traveling to Thailand, even though we were staying in a really nice hotel, a lot of the excursions we would go on would be at kind of these rural parks and places where you would need to bring your toiletries. And, and, and some, when I mean toiletries, I'm not talking, I'm not talking about like toothbrushes and toothpaste and stuff like that, but I'm talking about like actually toilet paper because in some places you, they won't have that. They may have a hose or something like that you can wash off with and a hole in the ground, but yeah. that's about it. I don't know how the experience was for you over there. So Bhutan is lucky enough to have introduced tourism relatively recently that they have Western style toilets in a lot of places. Okay. So we don't have these squat toilets that you have. They're popular in, in China and, and you know Japan necessarily, but they had Western style toilets. So I was covered there and they have enough toilet paper because again, tourists are paying so much money that you know they make sure the tourists have kind of the best treatment. That's an older crowd too, in, in a lot of mm-hmm. cases. So it, it might be, there might be some health issues where they need to have some some comfort there. Absolutely. So, so let's talk about the destination. Let's talk about your travel. So you left from LAX, is that correct? Yes. Okay. And um, you were just dropped off there, so you didn't take a super shuttle or Uber or anything like that, right? Happy enough, or lucky enough to have parents who live <laughs> ten miles away from, and happy uh, to live ten miles away from LAX. So yeah, packed my backpack, and my parents drove me to LAX. So dropped off late night, had a one a.m. flight. Um, so yeah, I mean, a big these big international flights, right? They. If you want to go cheap, you'll usually take off first thing in the morning. So, do you normally travel in like the early, early morning time frame? Uh, yeah, if I'm going, if I'm going internationally, I usually do, um, just because it allows me to sleep. You're going to have these long flights anyway, so you know, kind of queuing yourself up to sleep on the plane um, if it's a long flight, so that you can kind of sleep through the day potentially and get acclimated to the new time zone. Is kind okay. of how I do it. Cool. Uh-huh. And uh, you had mentioned before, what flight did you end up taking to get there? So I took a China Eastern flight. So I actually booked it through my credit card company okay. um, because I had I booked it on credit card points. Oh. Um, super convenient. So booked it on China Eastern. So I went from LAX to Shanghai, okay. um, which is about a 14-hour flight. Then had a pretty short two-and-a-half-hour layover in Shanghai before going from Shanghai to Kathmandu, Nepal. Okay. Um, which is about a three-hour flight. So Kathmandu, Nepal, super interesting city, super interesting country. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, spent a one about a day and a half in Nepal before finally getting on a Royal Bhutan airline flight to Bhutan. Excellent. So there's one airline that flies into Bhutan, and that is Royal Bhutan. Uh, there yeah. are four, they have four planes. They have eight <laughs> pilots. 
Uh, if one of those pilots is sick, then that flight doesn't fly for the day. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's the advantage of having a kingdom and, and, and they, they can kind of control that if they want. So uh, good for them. Uh, so let's talk about the first destination. Let's talk about um, Nepal. Talk to me a little bit about Kathmandu. What, what can you tell me about that? Yeah. So I showed up and true to the guides who said it would be raining, it was raining. Uh, it was pouring <laughs> rain, and some of the roads, most of the roads are paved, but some of the alleys and stuff aren't paved. So you'd be walking through mud alongside other, you know, 20 something year old backpackers, but also backpackers of all ages. So you'll have, you know, those who are getting ready for treks um, who might be in their 60s because they've just retired and want to do, you know, go to base camp for Everest. So it's super interesting. Um, I stayed in a very, very nice hotel that was, I think, potentially an old palace. and just kind of walked around. I feel like that's the best way to get acclimated and, and learn the city is to walk around, smell the smells, see the sights, eat the food. Um, and they had rolling blackouts at the time. Mm. Um, I think this might be common kind of during monsoon season. Uh, and when I say rolling blackouts, I mean just power outages really. But they... They had a couple power outages, so I ended up getting a cup of coffee my first day, and they had a power outage, but they immediately brought me a candle to to my table. So you could tell that this was pretty common. Um, but it's super interesting to walk the streets because, like I said, it's such a destination for treks and hiking that a lot of stores just sell a lot of camping gear, backpacks and carabiners and patches and stuff. So kind of a, a functional area in the neighborhood where I was kind of looking around. Um, but yeah, just got to walk all around. So like any developing nation, some of the roads are paved. There are stray dogs here and there. But the people are super friendly. Like the second you get off the plane, everyone's willing, you know, wants to drive you into town. And having traveled enough uh, in some other developing nations, I was kind of apprehensive because you think people might be scamming you or there might be high crime rates. But Nepal, it's predominantly Buddhist. Um and the crime rate is remarkably low, it seems. Um, so I actually had somebody, a guide who I had prearranged, meet me at the airport and drive me to my hotel. Um, and they were kind of my Kathmandu guide for a day and a half or so. Excellent. And just for the benefit of my viewers, do you remember what kind of currency they were using there? Um, they have their own currency. I can look up the name of it, but it is their own the it is called the oh Nepalese rupee rupee okay that's what I thought so it's like it, there's a lot of rupee uh, things in the area but I think um, there are certain ones that are limited like I, I don't know it, it, there are certain ones that if you I, I think if I'm correct and I'll have to do my research on this that if you use the currency you have to give it back before you leave the country you know oh, interesting i don't remember the one that is but I'll, I'll i'll remember that when i get closer to that so anyways you're there for about a day and a half you're experiencing everything um did you have any um like a pre-done excursions during that time in nepal or was it just more of letting your guide kind of take you around the area yeah, mostly the latter. Um, this was kind of the the front end of this was to get myself acclimated to the elevation effectively, um, and make sure I was good to go to Bhutan, where I would then do kind of my second level of acclimation and do some day hikes and day trips uh, to then come back to Nepal and do this fourteen day trek of the Annapurna Circuit. Okay, cool. Um, 
so yeah, Kathmandu was great for a day and a half. Um, and we can talk about kind of the tail end of this trip mm-hmm. after Bhutan potentially. Or And that's our next destination is take, take me on the itinerary now. Let's talk about Bhutan. So yeah, my first, I guess my first introduction to Bhutan was me walking into the Kathmandu airport or onto the jetway as it so happens and seeing this prop plane of Royal Bhutan Airlines. It was a propeller plane. I hadn't flown on a propeller plane in 20 years. Um, So it probably fit about 50 people. You get onto this prop plane and I was scared because you're flying into Paro Bhutan, which is the one international airport that they have. And it is the third most dangerous airport in the world. Mm. Um, So the runway is super short and it's located in a valley. So the eight pilots who exist in this airline who can fly into this airport are so well-trained that they know exactly how they have to take this last turn and then drop, you know, a thousand meters into this valley before they land on this, you know, 1000 meter long runway, super (laughs) short runway. Um, So the flight was actually one of the smoothest flights I'd ever been on, which was super unexpected given the weather previously. Um, So when I flew, it was clear, but uh, you know, it had been raining. So it was, it was very clear when I flew uh, and the mountain air was just super smooth unexpectedly and we land and it was you know you land in this lush valley and you walk out onto the jet bridge or the jetway there's no jet bridge you walk out onto the runway effectively and you walk into the airport and your guide who you have prearranged welcomes you and you know puts this shawl thing over you and welcomes you to Bhutan and walks you out to your driver uh, and then you get going and you you introduce yourselves um, and then we're off so you know, got to meet my guide, whose name was Pema, a very common Bhutanese name, uh, and my driver, whose name escapes me at the moment, who didn't speak much English, but was, was a riot for, you know, the next six days or so. <laughs> Excellent. Talk to me about some of the activities that you did over those six days. Yeah, so super interesting activity. So I spent my time in two cities, uh, Paro, which is where the international airport is, uh, and Timpu, the capital. So Timpu, I want to say, has 200,000 people, and Paro probably has 100,000 people. Okay. Um, so I spent the first night, now the first three nights in Timpu, and then the last three nights in Paro. So we actually drove from the airport down, down to the capital city of Timpu, which is probably about a 45-minute drive. And along this drive, you're driving around these these mountainous valleys with huge rivers rushing by you because there's all this snow melt and these glaciers um, that are melting. And it's actually one of the their, their main export in Bhutan is renewable energy. Um, so a lot of this is hydroelectric energy. Mm. Um, so super interesting drive because you see kind of the architecture, you see all sorts of Buddhist prayer flags, and then you see really devout Buddhists who are making a migration of sorts from one city to the other um, and doing this thing. The name escapes me right now, but they would take one step, get on their knees, bow, get back up, take one step, get on their knees, bow. And they would do this for the 40 miles that separate the two cities. I saw this four or five times on our drive. So So it is a devout pilgrimage. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Really interesting. Yeah, very unique. So we got to Timpu, and I got in my hotel, which was lovely, had television. Um, so <laughs> they they had actually, Bhutan turned on television and added cell phone service in 1999, I believe. Okay. 
um, or sorry, television and internet in 1999, cell phone service in early 2000s. Um, so I had a cell phone in my room. Again, they treat you like royalty if you're a tourist. Um, so I got to my prearranged hotel. I got inside, nice bed, nice accommodations, um, and got ready for dinner. And my driver and guide knew my eating restrictions, so I don't eat mammals. Um, so... There are a number of dishes in Bhutan. Again, I travel for food mainly, and I'm a big cheese guy. So one of the reasons I went to Bhutan is because their national dish happens to be cheese-based. Um, <laughs> so their national dish and a, a series of dishes that they have are called dotsies, which just ah, means cheese. Okay. Um, so their main dish is called Emma Dotsi, which just means chili cheese. Um, and it's a combination of, I think, yak's milk cheese and very spicy Bhutanese chilies, which are very spicy uncooked, but when you cook them down, they lose some of their heat. Okay. So it's, if you can imagine like a, a chili relleno without the fried bits and, you know, a Bhutanese flavor as opposed to a Mexican flavor, it's kind of that level of, of heat. Um, so very tasty. You eat it over this red rice that they have uh, with four or five other dotsies. So they serve you way too much food in this country, um, which is <laughs> You're lovely. You're their guest. I get it. You know? It's precise. It's, it's the hospitality. Yeah. Um, and Pema was not, not a small man. So we were, we were fast friends in talking about food. Um, but I basically... You know, they asked me what I wanted to do over the course of my six days there, and I said I want to focus on you know getting out hiking, but also like doing what the locals do and feeling out you know what the Bhutanese culture is all about. So uh, we did a couple of really interesting hikes, and they got to telling me all about their kingdom and and their royalty. So they all really admire the king and the prince, and it seems like the king and prince kind of just exist amongst the people. So while they have their protected quarters, they will do bike rides. So bikes are very popular there, like bicycles. Um, they will, the king and prince will go on these bicycle rides on the same paths that all the civilians do. And they'll say hi to everybody on a regular basis. So we ended oh. up going on a hike along one of those paths. Didn't see the king, okay. um, but I was told that that's where the, the king would also bicycle sometimes. So Is it expected that if they're biking past you that you're required to bow or do anything like that? Or do you know? I, I don't know. Um, it seems like everyone respected the king. So I don't know if that's customary, but it seems like he was a man of the people enough that you might not have to bow to him. Okay. Perfect. So, um, yeah, we did a few really interesting day hikes. Um, like I said, I was trying to train for this long trek. So I would go on runs just to kind of see the area. Um, so there are, temples and forts so they have these big fortresses called zongs d-z-o-n-g uh we did we went into a couple of those and those were you're required to cover your arms and legs um and you would go in and you'd see these wonderful paintings on the walls uh that kind of depict these stories around the buddhist culture going from nepal to bhutan and the transformation of of their culture and all these beings, mythical some, um, but also real in others. Um, and then you would look at, you know, the horses and the wildlife. So they've got uh, a really unique animal called a token, which is their, their national animal, which is kind of a combination between a goat and a cow. Um, very interesting looking animal, 
but they can only really live at very high elevations. <laughs> so they've got this talking sanctuary in, you know, next to one of the hikes that we were doing. So I got to spot a couple of talkins. Um, and because they love this animal so much, it is their, I tried talking wine, which has nothing to do with the animal apart from the branding, but this is their <laughs> Bhutanese <laughs> wine. Yeah. Uh, not from a talking. They have talking whiskey. So I got to try, you know, their, I got to imbibe uh, some of their local libations, which was lovely. So late night, you know, my guide is staying in the same city as me, potentially the same hotel. But, you know, we would, we would enjoy a drink at night um, and I ended up going to like meet his friends. Like I said, I wanted to kind of be enveloped in their culture. So he, he introduced me to his friends uh, and we would drink at their bars. So the bar scene is super interesting. They don't really have big bars, but rather... Um, kind of just imagine a room of a house. You would go into an apartment lobby or something, a small lobby, and there would just be what looks like a jewelry case, but that would house bottles of liquor. And you would effectively sit down on couches and drink liquor with the bartender or drink wine with the bartender. Restaurants serve liquor, but for, you know, the the experience of really drinking at a bar, you're just kind of hanging out in this room with locals. Um, and that's what I did and it was remarkably enjoyable. And then they would go back to my hotel at night and sleep. Did you, did you have to pick on any Bhutanese while you were there or as far as the language goes? Absolutely not. I think, (laughs) I think I, I think I may have like, you know, you learn the basics about, you know, please and thank you. And and I knew the foods, which were the important parts, um, but did not recall any and did not did not learn a lot. And that wasn't difficult for me. Again, you're, you're accompanied by your guide who speaks Bhutanese mm-hmm. and English and your driver who speaks Bhutanese and can talk, you know, works regularly with their guide. So it wasn't necessary. But, um, you know, that's kind of what the experiences of Bhutan were for the most part. Now, there are clearly souvenir shops. So I did a lot of walking. Um, What I thought was really interesting was my experience in Paro. So three days after, you know, some time in Timpu in the capital city, we, we go up to Paro which is a town of about 100,000 people. And they've got a basketball court. Um, I guess Timpu, actually, I just learned, is the only capital city in, in Asia without a streetlight. So no streetlights in this country, really. They added one in Timpu, uh, and it got such strong pushback and so, so, much cost, so much conflict with the citizens who thought, you know, that tourism was changing the way that Bhutan was, that they ended up taking it out. Now there's just a crossing guard. So it's this big intersection with one little hut thing where a crossing guard might sit. So one evening after a few drinks, me and my guide wandered out to that little hut and I, would, I stood in there for a picture and acted like I was guiding traffic. So very fun. Um, but we ended up going back up to Paro where I stayed in the first hotel that was built in Bhutan for tourists. So hotel was built in 1974 Mm -hmm. when they opened up the borders. Um, and it's a super interesting hotel, big wooden hotel. Um, it's kind of a traditional hotel layout. So probably three stories or so, but pretty extensive. Um, but they also have little huts around. So if you don't want to stay in the main hotel, you can stay on the premises in your own little cabin effectively. And that's where I stayed. So I stayed probably 500 meters away. And for 
the students, 500 meters is, you know, 1600 feet or so, let's say. <laughs> um, but ended up staying in my own little cabin on the premises. So the premises is gated. You would walk into the premises and I would have meals in the main hotel area. So most meals that I had were buffet style in these hotels um, just because, you know, they don't know your individual eating habits. And because they are used to eating so many different dishes, it's just Ooh. easier if it's a buffet style. So loved it. Probably gained 10 pounds in my trip. <laughs> But you walked off also because you were doing so much hiking. Precisely. And that's one of the things you notice when you're over in Europe is you tend to eat, pr- like, they seem to give you a lot of food. Like, when I was in either Italy or Copenhagen, you know, I was eating a lot in the, in the morning, but you're walking everywhere too. So, I mean, you are expending more energy. And I, I don't know that a lot of my students understand that either. It's, it's like when you're, when, you're, when you're traveling here domestically in the United States, most people have a car or they have public transportation that they're able to get around with. When you're traveling, you know, outside of the United States in either Asia or in uh, Europe, you tend to be in city environments or at least within hiking environments that a lot of people will either bring a bag or bring a backpack and... Man, people get skinny because they're walking so much, or they have bikes, like you were saying. Also, that's another thing. A lot of people ride bicycles. A lot of people ride bicycles. So yeah, Um, yeah. I mean, it was it was not easy to choose to walk all the time, right? Because I had this driver who, in theory, I had paid to follow us around and drive us everywhere. So had to make an outward effort to walk everywhere or to walk most places. Um, I was going to ask you, what kind of foods were in the spread that you would typically see there? Was it mostly Americanized stuff and English stuff or is it the local cuisine? They have a combination. So there are certainly some of the the tourists who want to eat something that's a little bit closer to home. So they did have Western style stuff. So they would have egg omelets over rice and potentially toast and tomatoes for the English tourists. Um, but I, I mostly ate lots of rice, lots of Emma Dotsi, the chili and cheese. Um, they had a chicken stew called Joshu Maru, which is very tasty. Um, yeah, I would, I would have a combination. And then they've got this really interesting tea called suja, which is basically butter tea. So they churn this butter or they mix this butter in with this tea. So it's a very salty tea. Um, that tastes slightly like butter, but fresh butter from. And to be clear, are we talking about cow butter or yak butter? Very good question. Completely unsure. I'm inclined to say yak <laughs> butter. Um, I do know yaks are play a pretty central role in their cuisine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we ended up going to actually a market. So one of the big things I wanted to do was go to a market where people buy their food, right? The locals buy their food. So we went to this outdoor market, which was huge. Um, I got to see what they were eating. So a popular snack of theirs is yak cheese, but dried yak cheese. So imagine a hunk of feta cheese size. So call it a one by one by one inch cube um, that is dried out and you toss in your mouth. And it's basically a cheese flavored jawbreaker that lasts for 30 minutes or so. Appealing to some, not appealing to others, but uh, definitely a unique experience. If you're a cheese fan... It's worth. It sounds like it's worth trying. Precisely. I just have to take you up on that offer because that that, that appeals to me. You know, I'm, you know, I'm a big cheese fan. You are. You are indeed, and it is lovely. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't bring any back. Um, but next time you're in Bhutan, highly encourage it. But I did bring back some some chilies, some dried chilies. So 
uh, Bhutanese chilies are very popular and very spicy. And I ended up bringing back probably about a pound of chilies. Um, How do you compare them? Because so, you've, you've done a lot of traveling. You've been to Mexico. You, you've been to a lot of different places that do have chilies. How do you compare them with other chili brands or other chilies that you'll see in different locations? Yeah. So I would say the fresh chilies there are probably spicier than most that I've had. So in Thailand, they're very spicy. But in Bhutan, it's there's something about the... We'll call it a terroir. Um, but there's something about the region in which they grow these chilies high up on the mountains yeah. that just make them so, so spicy, um, which I love, but some people might hate. And you can, you can request to get stuff not very spicy, but they will default to some pretty spicy, you know, pretty high up there on the scale. Um, and I will say that, like I said earlier, they eat well there. Um, anytime I had a meal, my guide and driver were with me. And anything that I couldn't eat, they would happily take to themselves. Um, it was a lot of shared dishes. So they, you know, all the food would be finished off. But they don't measure their economy or their success of the country by gross domestic product, but rather by gross national happiness. Oh. So... I've seen was, countries that do stuff similar to that, like um, Thailand. When we went to talk with them. Uh, we talked with a couple of tour, the tour guides that were there. They, they they do measure their economy based on gross domestic product, but the measure of the people there and how happy they are, it doesn't matter your station, whether you're really, really rich or really, really not rich. Um, as long as you're happy in your specific area of life, that that is something that's measured on a fairly regular basis. Yeah, absolutely. So the government, yeah, the government puts out surveys um, and a lot of people are very happy, but there was a running joke that the gross national happiness is, is this, is your, is your stomach. So my Pema used to tap his stomach after every meal and say gross national happiness. Um, Love it. So they seem to eat well, but when I was in Paro, I think the, the coolest experience that I had was the hike we took to the tiger's nest, um, which is a famous monastery that is, if anyone's seen anything about Bhutan, if you search Bhutan on Google, you will inevitably see the tiger's nest monastery, which is a monastery that is effectively built onto the side of a cliff. Um, so these devout monks hauled up all this wood and all the supplies up to the side of a cliff and managed to build this phenomenal looking monastery. So we took a hike up there. So you travel probably 30 minutes outside of Paro to the trailhead. And then you take a pretty strenuous one and a half to two hour hike up to the bird's nest or sorry, tiger's nest, not bird's nest. Um, And on the way there, there's a little cafe where you can get tea and crackers and cookies and stuff. Um, but it is a it's a spectacular monastery, super interesting experience just to see this architectural feat. Um, so secluded. Uh, it's next to a huge waterfall. You're overlooking the city of Paro, but also just all this nature, these rolling mountains that are each, you know, 20,000 feet high. So it's just a remarkably unique experience. And, and phones and videos are not allowed in there. Mm. Um, so you, they check your phone when you walk in and you have to, like I said, cover your appendages. But super interesting to see something that's so old and is just so unique are out you, there in the middle of the wilderness. 
are you expected to make an offering while you're up there or can you, can you provide them? Like if you're bring, like, if you're going to stop at a snack shop anyways, can you bring up like crackers and like leave that as like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I don't know if it's expected, but it's definitely seen as generous if you do. Um, and I know a lot of people happen to buy stuff at that gift shop. So yeah, totally uh, astute. Um, definitely a possibility to, to make some offerings there. Okay. Uh, but it, it seems to be a, quite the experience even for my guide who accompanied me on this hike. And like I said, Pemo is no small man, but he seemed to make this hike look very easy as did the 90 year old women who seemed to do this hike every morning because they were passing us on the, on the trail. So, you know, you get acclimated. The life expectancy over in a lot of the Asian countries, especially those with the high Hills um, are surprisingly high. Um, You know, they're, they just, they do walk a lot. They do exercise a lot. And we just don't, we, we don't even fathom the level of things that they do on a regular basis. Yeah. This is, I guess, one more, one more push to get everyone out there when you can get out there safely, you know, socially distance appropriately, but get some exercise, you know, we yeah. can't be getting past on the trails around the world. So <laughs> um, I would say that was a super unique experience. Um, I think the other my other big experience that I had in Bhutan, which actually changed the entire trip for me. So not a positive experience, but a unique experience was Cameron in his mid twenties, uh, decided one night that he wanted to go to the one club that was in Paro Bhutan. Um, so, Ended up going to the club by myself and Pema, my guide, and the driver went back to Chimpu and they, they had some personal matter to deal with. But they said, Cameron, whatever you do, make sure that you take a taxi home at the end of the night. Do not walk home because my hotel was about a mile outside of Paro, um, up a big hill. This is the dogs. This is the dogs. <laughs> All right. Go on, please. So, so I've got about a mile... I stay about a mile away from Paro, um, up a big hill, and I walk down into town for you know the, the evening. So I walk down by myself, um, and like I said, there are many stray dogs in, in most developing nations. Um, and the dogs seem to be friendly. While they might bark here and there, no, no dogs are, are biting anyone that I see. So I walk into town, get myself some dinner, go to the cafe, talk to a few strangers who want to practice their English um, and end up going to a club and have a great old time. I'm drinking the local whiskey. I'm dancing with uh, strange women, anything that I could want as a single man in my mid twenties. So here I was one, one AM in the morning clubs closing down. I leave with the other 75 people who are in this club. So effectively half of Paro's population, it seemed. And I walk outside and the five taxis that exist in Paro had all seemed to have gone home for the evening. So I was faced with this choice of, okay, it's one in the morning. Do I try to navigate back, you know, somewhat inebriated? Do I try to navigate back to this, this hotel an hour outside of the town? Or do I try to find a hotel that's willing to house me at one in the morning in town? Um, so I walk with my club friends, you know, we're still chatting a bit, I end up walking with them a bit and, and finally decide that I want to go back to my hotel. So I start making the trek back to the hotel in the dark with dogs barking in the distance, you know, a couple streetlights here and there. I end up walking 
Um, the first thing I, I pass that scares me is I see a dog who's sleeping and he gets up and looks at me and I go, uh-oh. And a car ends up passing between me and the dog and I then run with the car who blocks me from the dog's vision and I'm safe. So I, I think I'm, I'm home safe at that point. I walk, I finally see the gate to my hotel property. I walk into the gate and I walk to my cabin and realize that I had left my key at the hotel for the evening because I knew I was going to go to the club and didn't want to lose it. So I walk, start walking to the big hotel part, right? 500 meters away, here I am. I hear dogs barking. I'm like, okay, okay. The dogs barking sound like they're getting a little closer. I then see a dog start coming at me and I say, "Uh oh, (laughs) something's wrong. So I am here. Hotel is probably 300 meters in front of me and the dog is at my, you know, if I'm at six o'clock, hotel's at 12 o'clock, dog is at 10 o'clock. So kind of between me and the hotel. I start running towards the hotel. I end up tripping in the garden. This dog and all his dog friends to whom he was barking come and surround me. So there are four dogs around me and I am on the ground. I am punching at these dogs and kicking and yelling at the top of my lungs. Did they actually connect with you? I mean, like, did they actually bite you? They did not bite me. Oh my God. I don't know if it was a matter of me just being silly and scared and they just wanted to be pet or something. <laughs> they were all in my they were mind, surrounding you. I don't know if they want to just be pet. Exactly. In my mind, they were lunging at me and snarling their teeth and barking. And I was yelling at the top of my lungs and punching and kicking. So I ended up getting up and trying to sprint again. And a combination of the me being at 10,000 feet elevation, me being a little bit, you know, yeah. Uh, and me being scared out of my mind, my body basically goes into shock and I pull both of my hamstrings immediately. And I mid stride fall again onto the driveway of the hotel, cut up both my palms and both of my knees. And I am now bleeding. And these dogs surround me again. And I do the same thing. Now they smell blood on you. Exactly. (laughs) Shark dogs all over the place. (laughs) So I'm punching and kicking at these dogs. None of them make contact with me. I managed to effectively crawl into the hotel and like yell to the guards to help me. And the dogs don't come in the hotel. So the dogs, or sorry, the guards help me up and look at my wounds. And I'm like, can I get some Band-Aids, some rubbing alcohol? And of course, because Bhutan's national healthcare system is so great, they just go to the hospital for every wound that they get. So they didn't even have a first aid kit on hand. So they managed to escort me back to my room. So they, I have one guard under each shoulder. They walk me back to my room because I can't walk at this point because I've pulled both of my hamstrings. Um, they shine big bright lights at the dog so the dog kind of scamper away. They escort me back to my room and I go to sleep. And I wake up the next morning, a bloody mess, can barely walk, and I end up meeting... You know, I try, I hobble out of my little cottage and I end up meeting another couple from Texas who happened to be doctors. So they had Neosporin and Band-Aids and they managed to help me with my wounds. But I got in touch with Pema. We went to the hospital. They looked at my cuts, bandaged me up, gave me some antibiotics. uh, And that was that. But I basically couldn't walk, which meant that I couldn't then do this Annapurna circuit. So the next... 12 hours or so was spent because I had booked my travel through my credit card company and not the airline. I couldn't call the airline. I had to call the credit card company to call the airline. (laughs) And because I didn't have a a cell phone, I had to call from the hotel and the hotel, because it's Bhutan 
didn't make many calls. So they charged me, I think it was like a minute per call. And I think that call probably lasted about an hour to an hour and 15 minutes. Um, so I, I, that was about an $80 call all to cancel the rest of my trip because I could not go on this trek. Oh, man. Uh, so I had to book a flight back to Nepal, uh, I think a couple days early, and then book a flight back to Los Angeles because I couldn't make this trek. So that was two weeks less trip that I had because I decided to go and not take a taxi back from the club. So that's your lesson, kids. <laughs> Students, oh. always take a taxi when you can. <laughs> oh, Cam. I, I, so for my viewers, Cam's told me, a, he's alluded to this story, but I've never known the full scope of this story. And wow, man, you're just, you're, you're much more adventurous than I am, or, or at least you have been. So um, <laughs> I, will, I will say it's, I've got one... One more story from that, and this is this shows you how how the world you know everything happens for a reason. Um, and this is not Bhutan specific, but Bhutan was a phenomenal trip. And on the back end, I still managed to go to uh, Kathmandu for about another day or so. But I get back to Kathmandu and end up meeting up with a friend who I had met on the front leg of this trip. So there was a series of traveling nurses who were doing about a week in Nepal, and because. They had been there about a week. They were kind of on the tail end of their trip as well. So ended up meeting up with one of my friends and she let me know about this opportunity to do uh, what they call an Everest flight. Um, and she was leaving at 5 a.m. in the morning and had arranged it with the hotel. And I said, okay, I don't know exactly what the Everest flight is, but I'd love to accompany you. I can't walk. This seems like a great opportunity. So I asked the hotel if they had any more spots in this flight that was going to leave at like 6 in the morning. Uh, and they said, well, we don't have any window seats left, but we could give you... Uh, or actually, they said, we don't have any seats left on this flight. So... Instead, I didn't really believe them because I had seen how things had gone down in Nepal, right? With enough, enough Nepalese rupees, you can kind of make anything happen, it seemed. So I ended up going with my friends to the airport at, at 5.30 in the morning and asking them if they had any more seats on this flight. And they said, well, we don't have any window seats, but we'll give you an aisle seat and we'll give you it for half price if you want. Um, and I said, that sounds wonderful. So I, they took me back. I didn't even show them my passport. They took me back, took the equivalent of $100 from me, uh, wrote me a handwritten ticket and gave it to me. And I walked out onto the runway and got in this jet. Um, so I got on this jet with my friend and sat next to her. And an Everest flight, they basically fly you up to 26,000 feet, fly you over to Mount Everest. They fly you around Mount Everest and they pop champagne. You drink champagne and fly around <laughs> Mount Everest for like 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And they open up the cockpit so you can walk in the cockpit and take pictures out of the front of the plane. And wow. it was one of the best experiences of my life. I cried on that flight because it was just so Aww. moving. After I had, it was an emotional roller coaster. The, you know, the previous three days, I had gone from a phenomenal, like getting super fit and super trim and ready for this big trip or big you know, trek and then getting handicapped effectively by these dogs and coming back and then seeing I'm a literally friend. getting hamstringed. Exactly. <laughs> it, was, it was an emotional time. Um, so I would definitely recommend that to anyone who happens to go to Nepal. is an Everest flight, super, super unique opportunity. Um, you get to see Mount Everest and all the other, like I said, 24,000 foot mountains around it um, from you know, drinking champagne next to a friend. 
Excellent. Well, well done. So let's start to talk about the return back now. Your, your wonderful journey is coming to a conclusion. You're on your way back to the U S how was the return flight first off? Yeah. So the Royal Bhutan flight was phenomenal from Bhutan to Kathmandu. Same thing, like super smooth flight. Those pilots are some of the best in the world because they have to navigate such treacherous terrain and treacherous weather. Mm-hmm. Um, you get back into Nepal and Flights from Kathmandu to Shanghai during monsoon season mm. are a little bit tumultuous. So I think I ended up getting actually delayed a couple times. Um, and because, you know, China Eastern, I think, is a potentially a budget airline. They're not prioritized as much. So I got delayed a couple times. But I was in the Kathmandu airport. I got to try momos, which are now one of my favorite foods. These are traditional Nepali or Tibetan dumplings Mm. filled with vegetables or meats or cheese in some instances, um, served with a side of like tomato chutney called achar. So good. Um, And uh, one, I would recommend anyone to search for their local Himalayan restaurant, Nepalese or Tibetan and search, get some momos. They're phenomenal. Got it. Um, But ended up eating, you know, three or four servings of momos in the Kathmandu airport. Um, over the course of, you know, five or six hours. And so I was in the airport for longer than expected, but ended up going, getting back to Shanghai, um, stayed in Shanghai overnight because I had been delayed. So missed the connecting flight back to Los Angeles, but because it was covered through my credit card, got on the next one in the morning. So stayed in Shanghai overnight and got back to LA um, and, you know, dealt with the usual jet lag for a couple of days. And then nursed myself back to health, was able to walk after a few days, was able to run after a few weeks. And I would say it was the most unique experience of my life, but the allure and the mystery around that, that trek that never was is what's going to get me back to Nepal in the next few years. Nice. So let's talk about post-vacation. What are the pros of going to a place like Tibet or Bataan? Yeah, so I would say definitely taking yourself out of your comfort zone. Um, while the guides might speak English and you might be, you might have Western food available to you. Um, I would say that taking yourself out of your comfort zone, be it physically or, you know, you know, training a lot or flying across the world to an area where you've never been, where you don't know a lot about it is pretty beneficial. Uh, for a number of reasons. I think the probably the most for me is kind of this notion of being becoming comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, it, it makes life so much easier. If you can kind of land on a new standard for where comfort is, anything that seems more, you know, that has previously been more comfortable than that is easy going. But because you've said now I have this new level of where I expect to become uncomfortable, uh, it just makes most things in life a little bit easier to deal with. Additionally, going to places like this gives you a whole lot of perspective. So you see citizens who you know, are so content with the basics They've never had television. They've never had internet and they make it through their day and they're one of the happiest nations in the world. So I'd say perspective is what I learned from the people of Bhutan. Pema is one of the happiest people I've ever met. 
Uh, and we stay in touch still through Facebook. So I will say that perspective is something that you get going to a lot of developing nations. Um, and then Nepal, like I said, I think that perspective of, of flying above the world's highest mountain with a new friend and meeting strangers along the way is, is something that's so unique and again, gives me perspective. I mean, you are this minuscule thing on this big planet um, and dropping, you know, a lot of money on this trip, frankly, shows, showed me that, you know, that's why we make money. That's why I make money, right? Is to, to be able to enjoy things that cost money. Um, and if you can't enjoy it while you have it, right? If you have to wait until you're retired to spend it, then in some instances, you won't be able to make those big, long treks. So this is you know, my encouragement to, to everyone to you know, take some time for you, to take a vacation, to spend that money because it's going to give you a rich experience that you can talk about a few years later with you know, the professor. Oh, thank you. <laughs> now, um, what are some other things that maybe a first-time traveler to these locations should be aware of that maybe you haven't discussed already? Yeah. So I would say get familiar with the currency. Um, get familiar with um, kind of the guide system. So figure out what's included and what's not. Um, I would say, although I talked about it, you know, shots, the appropriate shots are, are pretty necessary. Um and I would say just layers. Um, I think the, the weather can change pretty drastically, pretty quickly. And the key to being able to solve for that is going to be good layering. Um, beyond that, I would say have what I've now done with almost every trip is don't book travel. Don't expect to do anything the day after you travel or the day potentially before you travel. Basically, leave a one-day buffer on either end. I know it's not easy to book those vacation days and take that time, but there are unexpected travel mishaps, delayed flights, medical stuff. So I would say leave yourself a buffer on, on either end just to make sure you can fully experience what you want to experience and you don't risk missing something. That's actually a great recommendation. One of the things I've found that when I travel, you know, if you cut it too close, you you run the risk of, you know, either missing your flight or missing something else that you may have wanted to see. And then you have to cut that out of your schedule. So it's unfortunate when that happens. So I appreciate that. You've already shared so many things as far as, you know, different types of value adds as far as um, with, you know, booking through your credit card company and making sure that that helped you as far as when you needed to uh, be able to get through some of that stuff. Are, is there anything as far as best practices go that you, that you want to share as well? So I would say, I think that you would, in some Southeast Asian countries, it's cheaper for you to get a local SIM card to put in your phone than get an international plan. So depending on the countries, sometimes you can have access to an international plan. Uh, I know my phone company gives me access for, you know, something like $10 a day. Um, But really question if you need that, right? I would say that you can probably get by with no data. makes things easier in many instances. But I would say SIM cards, um, eating the local food is going to be cheaper, right? If you're seeking out an omelet or an acai bowl, uh, clearly somebody knows you're a Westerner and might take advantage of that. Um, so I would say eat like the locals do. That's probably how you're going to get both the most authentic experience, but also the cheapest food, which is one of my biggest concerns every day. Um, and just go in with an open mind, right? I think that is the, the biggest thing. Um, and 
you know, follow not only your gut for the decisions you make, but also follow your gut for, you know, what you choose to eat. So eat well and eat often. Well, thank you again, Cameron, for all your wonderful insight on this. Um, I, I really enjoyed this. And again, when we continue to do traveling in the future, I would love to hear from you again, if you enjoyed this experience. Uh, I and- did indeed. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. Now, for my viewers that are out there and for my listeners that are listening on the podcast, if you have any questions, um, you can certainly reach me at scott at the Um, If you do want to see new videos and you would like to be updated when new videos come out, please click on the bell icon at the top of uh, the YouTube channel page right there. Uh, If you haven't already done so, please subscribe. I always appreciate having likes um, as well. Um, If you're on the podcast, please rate me. I'd love to hear and get more information from you as far as feedback, whether or not you like what you're seeing. Uh, But until the next time, make every day a travel adventure. Thank you, everybody. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye now. The Professor Travel is a broadcast from Orange County, California. A transcript of each podcast may be requested by contacting The Professor Travel at his website, theprofessortravel.com. For opportunities to work with The Professor Travel, feel free to contact Scott at theprofessortravel.com or contact us through YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook at The Professor Travel or Twitter at TheProfessorTR1. Make every day a great day to have a travel adventure.